Well, dear people of God, this evening as we consider the goodness of God in afflictions, if I were to ask you right now to take a piece of paper and to write out a list of the top five ways that you can think of that God has been good to you, if you think of ways that thinking over your entire life and knowing that all good things come from God, what would you put on that list? What would be at the top of that list? We could all imagine things like writing on there, it's, it's good for me that I have become a parent or a grandparent. It's good for me that my needs have been supplied in this way or that way, financially or housing or food or whatever good thing that God has given us. We could, we could readily think of those things and put it on that list, but if you were sitting by the psalmist this evening and you peeked over and looked at his list, Right at the top of it, he would have written afflictions. This is how I know God is good, and God has been good to me. One of the reasons is that God has afflicted me. Now, what does this psalmist mean by affliction? When you study this word throughout the Old Testament, it has the idea to literally be bowed down low, to be bowed down low to the ground, to be humbled, to be humiliated. Here specifically, it speaks of being disciplined under God's chastising hand. This term afflicted is used in Genesis 15, 13, when God foretells Abraham that his offspring, the Jews, will be afflicted for 400 years in Egypt, speaking of their slavery there. Isaiah uses this term to describe the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. As God's people, affliction can come upon you in, in many different forms. It could come upon you in the form of sharp-tongued enemies who slander you and who ruin your good name and society. This is at least part of the psalmist's afflictions because we read in verse 69 that he says, the proud have forged a lie against me. This is part of his affliction, it seems. Affliction could come to you in the form of failing health, physical pain, tragedy. When you, when you lose a dear loved one. Affliction can come upon you as turmoil or financial crisis, difficulty of all kinds. Affliction is the thing that you didn't want to happen. As Job put it, it's the thing that I feared would happen. And it did happen. And there's nothing you can do to change it or to stop it from happening. That is affliction. We know that God's people are no strangers to affliction. The psalmist tells us elsewhere in the 34th Psalm, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Remember how our Lord Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. So it's not a matter for us as Christians as to whether we will or will not experience afflictions in this life. We absolutely, definitely will in some form, maybe not to the greatest degree, maybe to lesser degrees, but we all will experience affliction. 
and how difficult these afflictions can be. Scripture refers to them as the fiery trial which is to try you, Apostle Peter said. It's like the gold going into that fiery furnace. This describes affliction. And yet the psalmist here says, it is good for me that I've been afflicted. It's good. It is desirable, useful, valuable for me that I've been afflicted. It's good for me that I've been bowed down low to the ground. It's good for me that I've been humbled and even humiliated. It's good for me that I've experienced hardship, pain, sorrow, and suffering. It's good for me that I have suffered under God's chastening rod. Now, how on earth can the psalmist say this? How can he say it's good for me that I've been afflicted? How does that even make sense? How could you even put those two words in the same sentence, goodness and afflictions? They seem like absolute polar opposites. Well, in a way, this doesn't make sense. It's good for me that I've been afflicted makes absolutely no sense until we consider the good God who sent the afflictions. That's the only way this can make sense. If we would understand this truth, it's, been, it's good for me that I've been afflicted. We must understand and be reminded of the truth of the goodness of God. That our God himself is good. The psalmist has already told us in the 68th verse here, he says to the Lord, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. If the Lord himself is good, it only follows that all that he does is good. And dear saint, how we need to be constantly reminded of the goodness of God, especially in afflictions when we're going through afflictions. Remember in the garden, the first poison arrow that Satan shot into the mind of man was really a questioning of the goodness of God. Remember, God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them all the fruit of the trees to eat and said, you can eat of them. But the one tree, God reminded them, I'm God and you are not, and you shall not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did the serpent come whispering in Eve's ear? Did he come and say, hey, Eve, hasn't God been good to you? Look at all these fruit trees. Look at all God has allowed you to enjoy. No, he comes pointing out that one thing that God withheld from Adam and Eve. The one thing that God said they couldn't have. And you know the rest of the story. She bought into the lie. And here we are under the fall of sin and all its dreadful consequences and dear saint of God, Satan will whisper in your ear during seasons of affliction. He will never call attention to all the myriad ways that God has been so much better to you than you deserve. Every one of us deserve to be burning in hell at this moment. And if we have anything better than that, we're getting better than what we deserve, aren't we, dear Christian? That's the truth. That's the grace of the gospel to us in Christ. Nothing that we've earned or merited, and yet God has just poured out and lavished his grace and goodness upon us in Christ. And yet Satan will call attention to that one thing that you wanted 
or that one thing that God in his providence took away. And next thing you know, as you listen to those lies, you begin to question, is God even good? Has God withheld something that he should have given me? So we must beware, and we must constantly remind ourselves and remind one another of the goodness of God. Now, if we would know of God's goodness, we remember how Scripture teaches us that we must look beyond this created world to consider the goodness of God. And yes, creation reflects a beautiful image of God's goodness. It teaches us of God's goodness. But this is only a faint reflection of God's goodness as it is in himself. This is why Jesus in Matthew 19 told the rich young ruler, no one is good but one, that is, God. Stephen Sharnock reminds us concerning this, that God is the only original good, good of himself. All created goodness is but a small stream from this fountain, but divine goodness has no spring. God depends upon no other for his goodness. He has it in and of himself. We tend to think of God's goodness as God being good to us. And yes, that is, that is part of this truth. But God's goodness is so much richer than that. God was good before there was an us for him to be good to. God is absolutely good. The infinite perfection of goodness. Now, you know, as we confess, as Scripture teaches, and we believe and confess that our God is without parts. God is simple, a simple being. He's not composed of parts. And part of the reason for that is that if God were composed of parts, there would have to be somebody behind God to have put those parts together, and God would not be fully God. But we know this is not the case. God alone is God. He's dependent upon no, he is dependent upon no one or nothing. We confess this simplicity. Scripture teaches it. And when we apply this to the goodness of God, we realize that goodness is not part of who God is because God is without parts. But rather, God is not partly good. He is all good. God is his own goodness. God is all that he is in one timeless, eternal fullness of being. So God, concerning God's goodness, goodness is not something God has. It's who God is. Now, it's very different for us, us as creatures who are composed of parts. For us, to be and to be good are two different things. You could be without being good, right? You could exist and not be good. God cannot be without being good because for God to be is for God to be good. God just is his own goodness. And therefore, and based on this and in tandem with this, God is eternally and unchangeably good. God never started being good because he always has been and he's never changed and he can't change. He's always been good. He's good now. He always will be good. This can never change because God can't change. 
So just as it is impossible for God to cease being God, it's impossible for God to cease being good. For God to stop being good, he'd have to stop being God, and that he cannot do. We confess all of these glorious truths in chapter 2 of our confession, as Scripture teaches. So because God is good, absolutely good, eternally good, unchangeably good, then God can order even the worst afflictions for our good. He has the wisdom to do that. We know that this is speaking in a way of analogy because God is his own wisdom. But God is able to order affliction for our goods, dear, our good, dear saints. So since God in himself is good, God was good before there was ever a creature, then when God creates, and as God unfolds his providence, everything God does is good. Since God is good, as the psalmist acknowledges here, the Lord is good then everything God does is good. This is why seven different times in the creation account, when God made something, he pronounces at the end of the creation day, it is good, and at the end he says it's very good. Now this is how this affects us during our afflictions, dear believers. You will not always be able to see or understand the goodness of God. In afflictions. This is most of the content of the book of Job. It's Job and his friends trying to wrap their minds around, trying to understand why God has sent these horrible afflictions upon Job. His friends think they know. Job can't figure out. He doesn't understand. He keeps asking why this has happened. But in all of this, Yet, Job never cursed the Lord, and he was found faithful. And you remember how at the end of the book of Job, God doesn't give him answers, he just gives him God. And reminds Job that God is God and Job is not, and Job rests in who God is. Well, in our afflictions, dear saints, there will be times when we cannot understand. We know it. We know God's sovereign. We know God's good. We know, as, as Paul said in Romans 8, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. We know and believe that, but sometimes it is so difficult to live it, especially when we can't understand, we can't see any goodness in it. How is this going to turn out for my good and God's glory? But in these times, we must remember that our God is good. And whether or not we can see it or not, and, and how it's, his providence is playing out in our lives, we confess it and believe it with our, all our hearts, and we continue to confess it, even when we cannot understand God's ways. We can't always understand how it is good and for God's glory. But this we know, dear Christian, and I encourage you in the midst of afflictions to continue to confess this and praise God for it, that God is good and he's never not good. And even when you can't see his goodness, you still know he's good. I had a boss one time that used to tell us, he used to tell the crew, he'd say, I'm right, I'm always right, 
Even when I'm wrong, I'm right. Well, God is never wrong. But concerning God's goodness, there are times you won't be able to see it, but you can always know and confess God is good. He's always good. And even when I can't see his goodness and I can't understand his ways, I believe and confess that he is good. So with this truth of the goodness of God in mind, I want to focus here on verse 71 and preach on this theme of God's goodness in saints' afflictions. We'll see it in three basic thoughts. First of all, we consider here the praise of afflictions. The psalmist says, it is good for me that I've been afflicted. He's confessing that God orders afflictions to serve our good and that he's benefited from it. And isn't this what Apostle Paul told us in Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. The psalmist knows and we know that afflictions are part of these all things that God is working for our good as his people. Aren't you glad the apostle didn't say some things or most things work together for good to those that love God? If that were the case, dear Christian, you may go through an affliction in his life where you could say, maybe this is not part of those most things that are working together for my good. But see, since all things work together to the good of God's elect, and God is working it so, there is never an affliction, no matter how terrible, no matter how painful, no matter how undesirable it is, no matter how much it hurts, we can never say, this is outside the scope of these all things. No, it encompasses everything, all of God's providence. Everything, the worst affliction you ever experienced, dear believer, God is working it for your good. Think of the worst affliction that could befall you, the worst misery, the worst pain, the worst attacks of your enemies. No matter what the affliction is, God is working it for your good. This is the praise of affliction, the afflictions. The psalmist is glorifying God for it. Let's not miss here his language of how personal this is. It's good for me that I've been afflicted. You know, we can read the beautiful tapestry, the redemptive story of Scripture, and we can look at people like Joseph and say, it's good for him that he's been afflicted. Look at all that God did by letting Joseph be sold into slavery and then wrongfully accused, put into prison, and all of those terrible tragedies. Why? So that God could exalt him to being the right hand of man of the strongest ruler on earth and to help God's people survive through time of famine when they otherwise would have died and to preserve that redemptive seed line of Christ. All that God did through the tragedies and afflictions he brought upon Joseph, we can look at the big picture and say, well, it was good for him that he's been afflicted. We can see it with Apostle Paul, how that he said, I would have been exalted above measure. I would have been puffed up in pride, and, and it would have been to my destruction. But God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Even though I asked the Lord to take it away, he wouldn't remove it. And I'm thankful because in my weakness, his power is made manifest and his glory rests upon me. We can say it's good for Apostle Paul that he was afflicted. But it's another thing 
And it can be so difficult, dear believer, to say with the psalmist, it's good for me that I have been afflicted. But along with the psalmist, we must join this praise. We must confess and give God glory. Rather than complaining, rather than bitterness, rather than speaking in a way that casts doubt upon the goodness of God, may we repent of every murmuring against God's providential afflictions. And may we with this psalmist and with the people of God throughout Scripture confess that God is good and that his afflictions upon us are for our good. Now, as we do this as God's people, it gives glory to God. If God's people never suffered affliction, if, if the prosperity gospel were true and when you come to faith in Christ, your, your bank account is going to be bursting at the seams, you'll never be sick, you'll be healthy all your life and everything is going to go your way. Well, people would follow the devil if they could get those benefits. People don't care. That people that don't care about God would, would become a Christian so they could have those kind of benefits, but it's not that way. As God's people suffer affliction, it gives glory and honor to him, just like Job worshiping God as he slumps down to the ground under the sorrow as he hears the news of the loss of his children. And he confesses, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This gives such glory to God, and it is proof, and it is evidence. God puts it on display that God's people don't serve God for his goodies. They serve God for God, even in afflictions. And I encourage you, dear afflicted saint, Glorify God in the midst of it, even when it is from the depths, as Job did. So we've heard this praise of affliction. Now consider with me the product of afflictions. When God afflicts you, dear saint, he always does so with a good purpose, with a good end. It's never for no reason, it's never random or aimless suffering. God always purposes afflictions for our learning and for our sanctification. That's what the psalmist teaches here. Verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. These afflictions were for his, for his learning and his sanctification. And all afflictions are for this purpose for you, dear saint. God used affliction to help the psalmist learn God's good law to an extent to which he had never known it yet. We remember how our Lord Jesus, in his incarnation, though he did not have to be chastened for sin, for he, was, he had no sin and he was the perfect obedient son, but as he partook in our humanity, Hebrews 5 tells us that though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
for us as God's people who are sinners. As God afflicts us, he teaches us. He makes us to learn and experience what we hadn't experienced before. John Gill reminds us concerning the fact that even the sinless son incarnate suffered and learned obedience through suffering. He reminds us that we may learn from this not to expect to be exempted from sufferings on the account of sonship, nor to conclude that we're not sons because we suffer and that the afflictions are instructive and by them experience is learned. As God's people who, unlike our Lord, we do have indwelling sin. We do need to be chastened and corrected. When God afflicts us, this reminds us that he's doing so with the most valuable goal in mind. He's conforming you more and more to the glorious image of his own son, and he uses afflictions to do it. A few years ago, I was at a pastor friend's house and by hobby, he's a blacksmith. And we went out there to his blacksmith shop in his barn, and he wanted to make a knife for my son. And Pastor Derek Melton took that piece of metal, unformed metal, and he, he grabbed it with the tongs, and he put it into that fiery furnace, and he heated it up until it was glowing red with heat. And he put it on the anvil, and he took that hammer and began to strike it and hit it and turn it and strike it and strike that metal. He'd take it and put it back in the fire until it was glowing. Then he would strike it and strike it with that hammer back and forth and back and forth from the fire to the anvil, from the fire to the anvil. Hammering and hammering with such force. Did he hate that metal? Was his purpose to destroy it? Well, no, at the end of it, it came forth as a, a beautiful shaped blade out of Melton Forge, one of the most beautiful knives that we've ever owned in our household. The reason he was doing that blacksmith work, the reason he was putting it through the fire and hammering on it like that was for a good purpose that he had in mind. He knew what he wanted to shape it into, and he was doing it all to that goal and to that end. There was a product to it. That's how it is for you, dear saints. Sometimes you may feel like, well, is God angry at me? As he puts you through the fiery trial, as he hammers and hammers, and he allows your enemies to hammer on you. But every hammer stroke, every moment in the fiery furnace, he is shaping you and molding you to be more like Jesus Christ. And when you come out of the fire, when you come off of the anvil, you look more like our Savior than you did before. And affliction is one way that God accomplishes this great work. Now, it helps us as God's people in this to remember, as the psalmist is teaching us here, that it is God that sends the afflictions. And if it's God wielding the hammer, if it's God putting us into the fiery furnace, even if it's our enemies slandering us, even if it's the devil himself, we know that God is in charge over all of that, and they couldn't do anything without God's permission. Remember how we see that from Job? Job. 
the devil could only do what God allowed him to do. So we must remember, as Spurgeon said, and a friend of mine reminded me of years ago when I was really struggling, I was telling him about this Christian brother that was really aggravating me, really getting on my nerves. He was dissing me and saying things. Every time I got around him, he tried to make me look bad in front of people and just running his mouth. And I was going to this other Christian brother complaining, and he just reminded me. Well, it's like Spurgeon said, if a, if a dog is being beaten, it's no good to bite the stick that beats it. It's not the stick beating it. It's the one wielding the stick. It's no good for us to get full of hatred and animosity toward whoever is attacking us. It's God and his providence that is allowing them to do that. It's God that is using even our enemies to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. So we need to go to the source of the afflictions and realize that it is from God and take it up with him. Take it to him in prayer rather than taking it out on the instruments that he uses. This will help us not to be bitter, full of bitterness and hatred towards those who attack us, but rather to take it up with God and to acknowledge that it's him that sends the afflictions. The psalmist here, by the end of this section in verse 72, is able to say, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. He's saying there was a product to it. I value God's word. I value God's law more than I did before. I treasure God's word more deeply. I love and obey God better than before. God's law is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. This was the result of his affliction. And it will be the same for you, dear believer, as God graciously works in your heart and uses afflictions for your good. So I encourage you, dear believer, to take heart. God in his goodness has purposed every one of your afflictions. And as God in his goodness afflicts you, God will never allow affliction to destroy you but he'll always use it to make you thrive. I read of the introduction of a certain tree into England that was not native to that land. And the story went that the man who had the greenhouse had taken this lark tree and introduced it into his greenhouse in the middle of the winter, and he put it there with his plants in the pot and he noticed after a few days that that green tree was wilting and dying. It became sickly and looked like it wasn't going to make it, so he took it and threw it out into the trash pile out in the snow. After a few days, he noticed that that tree was thriving. It was turning green again. It was coming back to life. And he realized that he had had it in that warm, balmy atmosphere of that greenhouse and it wasn't meant for that atmosphere. It came from the highlands where it's always cold and it thrives in the cold. The warm atmosphere actually kills it. Well, dear Christian, isn't that that way so many times for us as God's people? When everything is going our way and we're not having any trouble, everything's going great in life, isn't it so easy to forget God that 
gave us the blessings. And in that warm, balmy greenhouse of prosperity, isn't it so easy to forget God and begin to die spiritually? But when God puts us out into the cold winter of afflictions and it seems he's forgotten about you, that's not the case. Dear Christian, this is where we thrive as God's people. This is why the apostles went around, you read it in the book of Acts, when they would encourage young Christians that had just been converted. What did they go around preaching to them? He said the theme of the message was that we with much tribulation must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what they did to confirm and strengthen these young believers. If we know this, and if we're ready for it by God's grace, then it'll help us understand better what's going on when the affliction comes. This is the product of afflictions, our learning and sanctification. Third and lastly, remember the passing nature of afflictions from this verse, verse 71. The psalmist says, it's good for me that I have been afflicted or that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. For the psalmist, these afflictions are past. He's looking back on them. And one day, you, dear Christian, will look back on all your afflictions. Paul said about some of his persecutions in, in 2 Timothy 3, he said, out of them all the Lord delivered me. One day, you'll be able to look back and say with Paul, yes, I went through some tribulations, some afflictions, but out of them all the Lord has delivered me. For God's saints, affliction is never permanent. It's only in this life. It's only for a moment in this life. And then you have eternity of glory ahead of you. And as our Lord Jesus suffered and entered into his glory, one day after you have suffered a while, you will enter into glory with him. Just like our Lord said in Luke 24, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? This twofold theme of suffering and glory, suffering unto glory as you follow your Lord through sufferings in this life. You will follow him in glory in the resurrection and the age to come. Reminds me of when my cousin Matthew joined the Marine Corps and he was in basic training, and we found out that during the crucible, that last section of basic, where they have to do that 40-mile forced march on, on barely any rations and all the grueling difficulty of it is the very worst part, the most rigorous, painful part of that Marine boot camp, the crucible that his buddy that he was assigned to had somehow broken a tooth, and they had to wire his jaw with a clothes hanger out on the field, and they went through all those difficulties. But my family was able to go and attend his graduation there at Camp Lejeune. And there on that day, when he completed his basic, he stood there in his dress blues with, with all of the other soldiers in his company. And for the very first time, instead of being called recruit, that drill instructor called him Marine 
reckoning him with the whole history of the United States Marine Corps. I've seen footage of grown men with tears streaming down their face when they received the title Marine after all the pain and all the rigor that they went through in boot camp. And now they are a Marine. They're done with boot camp. It's over. And today's the day of celebration. Today's the day that they become a Marine. Well, dear believer, whatever crucible of affliction that you're in, remember that it will not last forever. It may last for the rest of this life. We don't know. God may deliver you in this life. He may deliver you only in the life to come, but he will deliver you. Graduation day is coming, and when it does, all the pain will be behind, and it'll be glory, only glory before you forever. Paul reminded us of this in Romans 8, 18, when he said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So, dear believer, afflictions are temporary. The crown awaits you, and eternal glory is just ahead. And one day, you'll be able to say with the psalmist, it's good for me that I was afflicted, because you'll never be afflicted again. Now, as we've heard of God's goodness and afflictions, I point you most importantly to the greatest display of this theme that the world has ever known. Look there at the cross of Jesus Christ, where all of God's goodness and the afflictions that he suffered, that Christ suffered, meet there at the the cross upon Christ. See there, Lord Jesus, hanging between heaven and earth, suffering the wrath of God for guilty sinners. See him there as the man of sorrows, as Isaiah 53 told us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Never has a man been afflicted like Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows. He was suffering more affliction than we could suffer in a million lifetimes. He was suffering the very eternal judgment of God due to guilty sinners that was compressed upon him in the space of those short hours. As he tasted our hell, as he cried, I thirst. Never, never, dear Christian, will you or I ever feel this kind of affliction. This was something totally different. We can't even begin to fathom the pain and the suffering that our Lord endured to pay for our sins and to impart his righteousness to our account. But could you think also of a greater display of the goodness of God and his grace that God would send his own son his innocent only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father in whom the father delights and yet out of the overflow of his goodness and grace to guilty sinners he sends his son to take on flesh and to suffer in our place can you think of any greater display of the goodness of God to his elect this is how Paul reasons in Romans 8 
If, if, he, if God has offered up His Son for us all, delivered Him up for us all, will He withhold any good thing from you, dear Christian? He's already given you His best. You've already seen the greatest display of God's goodness there at the cross. So even when you can't understand it in your life, during the afflictions, you can't see the goodness of God. You know that God has already done all of this for you in Christ at the cross. And you can rest in this even when you can't understand and you can praise God for what you cannot comprehend. As Christ suffered, therefore, this was not the gentle disciplining rod of the Father like we experience for our sins as God chastens us. But rather, this was Christ absorbing the full fury of the eternal wrath of God due to guilty sinners. And this is the confidence that we have, dear Christian. When you're suffering, you may have thoughts like, well, maybe I'm, you know, maybe God's just giving me justice for my sins. Maybe God is pouring out his wrath on me for, our sin, for my sins. And you can know this, that that is never the case. You will not taste one drop of the justice of God due to guilty sinners. Yes, you'll taste the chastening rod, but it's a very different thing. You will never taste this judgment that Christ tasted at the cross because he drank down all the cup for you. He absorbed every bit of the wrath of God for you. And it's never because God is angry or God is pouring out the justice that you deserve to punish you, dear believer. Jesus paid all of that. So if you begin to doubt God's goodness and when you feel that God doesn't love you or that God has forgotten you or you think God is pouring out judgment on you for your sins, look there to the cross and remember that inexpressible gift of God giving his son for you. For those of you who are still in your sins, those of you who are not in Christ, dear, dear children who hear the gospel message, if you continue in your sin, even this day, if you were to meet God this very day and stand before God at, in the judgment, your afflictions will have just begun. You'll be cast, our Lord Jesus taught, you'll be cast into a fiery furnace where the flame never dies, where the fire is not quenched, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in that awful place of torment, afflictions worse than anything you could ever imagine. You will go there and you will be afflicted forever and ever with no relief and you will never again taste of the goodness of God. This is a reminder this very day. As you're on your path right now to eternal destruction, turn Turn and come to Jesus Christ. Believe on him who took the wrath of God for guilty sinners there at the cross. And this invitation is for you now from God himself that he tells us in his word as the psalmist says in the 34th Psalm, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I invite you to taste of Christ. Take him as your spiritual food. Take him as your Lord and Redeemer, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we praise and honor you, and we thank you especially for your goodness, and we thank you for your superabundant grace to us in Christ. We pray as your people, would you please forgive us of any and all bitterness, either toward a fellow human or toward you, our God. You know the secret thoughts of our heart. You know how prone we are to an evil heart of unbelief and how we have to fight against these tendencies and put them to death. Help us in this fight as we look unto Jesus Christ and by the help of your spirit, help us put these sins to death of discontent or murmuring or complaining against you and your providence. Give us grace that we may all persevere as you preserve us and that we may look ahead and press forward to the day that we'll all leave behind this sin-sick, broken world and this, this evil indwelling sin that we still have to struggle against. We'll leave it all behind and forever we'll live in glory and worship you without any distraction or hindrance. Help us to press toward this day and please help us that we would receive the greatest benefit and help that we can in this life in the afflictions to the praise of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.